You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, it'd be terrific to have your Bibles still open, your Bible app at Acts chapter 19. There's also an outline on the back of the news with the sermon points, so please use that if that's helpful. And I'm really excited today that along with the English, Korean and Dinka translations, there's actually also Mandarin now featured too. So I hope that is of help. Please make use of that. For right now, let's pray and ask for the ultimate help from our Lord. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the goodness, the logic and the beauty of the gospel. We pray that you would please be at work now in the power of your spirit, that we might grow in our understanding and our experience of who Jesus is. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Acts, we witness God's spirit work in and through people. We witness that in at least two ways, both in the sending, but also in the receiving of the good news. And so the spirit is sending, equipping, and propelling people outward with the gospel through word and example, often accompanied with extraordinary demonstrations of God's power. But the Spirit is also at work preparing those to whom the gospel goes, readying their hearts and minds to receive the good news that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. If you are a follower of Jesus, wherever you go, these front lines are an opportunity to participate in God's Spirit sending the gospel out. And when you do that, you can be so encouraged because you do so, you can do so in the knowledge that God's Spirit is already at work preparing the hearts and minds of those to whom you go. If you're here today and you're exploring the claims of Jesus, then that means that, in part, you are responding to the Spirit of God readying you to receive that same gospel. The Spirit is at work both in the sending and receiving of the good news. As Paul has taken his part in that, he's had quite the travel log. Last week it was Athens, this week it's Ephesus. This isn't according to time scale, okay? But last week we looked at Athens, this week it's Ephesus, had Corinth and a whole... Uh, plethora of places in between. But wherever Paul goes, he has a bit of a standard operating procedure. Whenever I used to travel a bit for work, I loved having a bit of a standard operating procedure, so it's really encouraging that it turns out Paul does as well. Arrive in the place, preach in the synagogue, branch out a bit, appoint some leaders, and then move on. That's the typical pattern of how Paul worked. Yet when he arrives in Ephesus things don't precisely follow that game plan. For whilst he arrives, preaches in the synagogue, then he goes to the lecture hall, Luke tells us that Paul didn't just pop in and pop out of Ephesus, but he stayed for two years. Actually, he stayed for over two years. Luke tells us that not only did Paul preach in the synagogue for about three months, but when he wore out his welcome there, he went and rented a hall, and day by day taught and discussed the gospel every afternoon, probably in the time slot when many people would have normally been taking their afternoon siesta. So that means that over two years, 
Paul would have taught in that place over 500 times. And we read in verse 10 that the effect was extraordinarily far-reaching. Verse 10, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This wasn't Paul's standard operating procedure because Ephesus was no ordinary city. Not only did it have a thriving economy and special freedoms from Rome and a population estimated a quarter of a million, but this was also a very religious place. Ephesus was home to the Temple of Artemis, one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was built entirely of marble. It was four times bigger than the Pantheon in Athens. It was the largest building in the Greek world. And it housed the image of Artemis, the god of fertility, a god of fertility, which some believe had actually fallen from the sky, perhaps from a meteorite, as we get a hint at uh, later on in the chapter. So that's the Artemis origin story that we hear reiterated by the town clerk in verse 35. It says, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? So this is not only at the heart of the city architecturally, but actually sits at the very heart of the cultural identity. This is a city not only with wealth, freedom and stability, but a city with spiritual and superstition at its core, which even some of the people of God seem to board into. That's the context into which Paul goes. That's the context into which the gospel goes. And as it does, we see three effects. Three effects I think we should also long for our own city. The gospel transforms lives, provokes response, and topples idols. So first, the gospel transforms lives. Verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul has taken a bit of a detour, but he's finally arrived actually back in Ephesus. And as he does so, he immediately stumbles upon some disciples who are a real spot of confusion. Not only have they not received the Holy Spirit, but actually they haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I remember a couple of years back now, one morning after the 9.30 service, my son, so Theo, came up to me in the foyer sipping on a hot chocolate, and I was a bit puzzled about how he acquired this hot chocolate so quickly, because the queue to coffee was so gargantuan at the time. And so I said to him, Theo, how did you get your hot chocolate so quickly? And he immediately responds, Dad, don't you know there's a kid's queue for hot chocolate? Because <laughs> it's amazing, you just stand at the end and they place a hot chocolate in your hand. In my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not sure about that. I didn't even know there was a children's queue. The disciples, they're amazed. They're thinking, what? We had no idea that this new age of fulfillment has arrived. It's dawned. This is all new. Everyone's catching up. They're trying to make sense of what has begun since Jesus' resurrection. Sometimes people have 
try to use this passage, they've really contorted this passage, to try and make a case for two types of baptism or some sort of multi-stage of salvation, of water baptism, then baptism of the Holy Spirit. That can leave people with all sorts of doubts whether they have received the Holy Spirit at all. It can leave people, as we've considered in previous weeks, feeling like they're second-rate Christians. But that's not what this passage is suggesting. And it's certainly not what is happening here. In fact, time and time again, throughout Acts, and indeed throughout the entire New Testament, we witness that the receiving of the gift of God's Spirit is, is not necessarily at baptism, but the gift of the Holy Spirit is at the point of belief, of when we put our trust in Jesus as Lord. And so, if you were asked the question today at morning tea, I'm not sure this is the best question to go around and ask, but if you were asked, have you received the Holy Spirit? If you trust in Jesus as your Lord, you can answer with a resounding yes. So note that as Paul presses them a bit about what type of baptism then that they have received, we discover that they have received a baptism of repentance, that is, the baptism of John the Baptist. It's why some people have suggested that these disciples were not yet disciples of Jesus when Paul first encounters them, but they were actually disciples, so followers of John the Baptist. You know, the one who, in the wilderness, was urging people to prepare a way for the Lord in their hearts through repentance, through turning back to God in preparation of the Messiah, that is Jesus, who is about to come. And until Paul tells them, it's as if they're living in some sort of salvation history time warp. It's a bit like accounts we might hear from times of war, when people who were stationed so remotely without any communication, that they didn't actually know the war was over until many years later when people eventually found them. But upon hearing the news that Jesus is the one to whom John had pointed, the one who John promised would baptise not just with water but with the Holy Spirit, these 12, or about 12, believe in Jesus, are baptised in his name and receive the gift of the Spirit. And it's as their lives get bundled up in Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what baptism, the same baptism we receive points to. It's then that they come to know God's presence and power. Verse 6. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So they spoke in tongues and prophesied. This isn't prescriptive of the way that everyone will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, that if you don't speak in tongues or can't prophesy, then you must not be spirit-filled or something like that. Of course not. Every follower of Jesus has received the gift of the Spirit, just as Jesus promised. But what a kindness that God did make His Spirit manifest in this way here, so that we, and actually the many, many millions who have read it, could be left without a doubt. Not only does the Spirit come with belief, but as God's Spirit comes into our lives, He does so with great power, be it visible or invisible. We can know and experience the whole truth 
without Jesus. Imagine how this revelation really compares to the people of Ephesus who worshipped a statue or some sort of stone that had dropped from a meteorite many, many centuries ago. Imagine how this compares to others in the pagan world who thought their gods wanted nothing to do with them or any of humanity. Or for the people of God who had longed for the fulfilment of the promise to stand in God's presence. We see that God is not someone distant nor disinterested in our lives. God is not someone whom we must appease or plead with to draw close. But when we believe, God doesn't just enter into our lives, but he takes up residence in us. As we pursue Jesus, his spirit is intimately present. As we seek to imitate Jesus, his spirit is at work transforming us into his likeness. As we proclaim Jesus, his spirit equips us in accordance with God's purpose for us. Second, the gospel provokes response. Verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them began, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and discussions daily in the lecture hall of Turinus. This went on for two years. Now, before we get to the response, let's first note the where, what and how, okay, the where, what and how of Paul's proclamation. So first, look at the what. What did he proclaim? So here he is in the synagogue. He's speaking to Jewish people and he's arguing persuasively about what? The kingdom of God. That's almost like shorthand to tell us that this is almost the equivalent of an Old Testament talk that links to how Jesus is the fulfilment of all those promises, that Jesus is the long-awaited one. We know previously with others, like those back in Athens, Paul teaches, almost in front of the altar to an unknown God, showing them that not only does God actually have a name, but Jesus is the one and only true God. And so now, whatever the setting, what Paul focuses on is the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. That's the what. But second, look at the where. Where did he proclaim? It wasn't just in the synagogue or in the lecture halls. Paul spoke about Jesus along the road, in the marketplace, everywhere he went. I know that there are some people here who, on some of the front lines, you can't just sit up a lectern in your workplace and preach a sermon or something like that. That wouldn't be allowed. That wouldn't be appropriate. There are limitations on, on what and how you can say. But I think it's an important principle for us to know that Paul doesn't segment or compartmentalise his life into where he would and wouldn't talk about Jesus or point to Jesus, but he finds a way that he can. And so I think that challenges us to be mindful and intentional, no matter where we are, appropriately, to point to Jesus with our whole life. The third, look at the how. So no, Paul didn't just stroll in with some sort of one-minute quick sermon and then dust his feet and leave. But he patiently, diligently and persuasively shared the good news alongside those with whom he lived and worked. 
He spent two years there, over two years. He wasn't in a rush. Some of that was arguing. Some of it was persuasive. In the lecture halls, there was discussion. The point is that he did everything he could to connect with both head and heart that people might come to know and experience the logic, the goodness and the beauty of the gospel. Paul proclaimed Jesus everywhere he could with every method at hand patiently. And that provokes a response. Now, we've already seen that the word of the Lord went out throughout the entire province of Asia. We know that some believed. Paul took disciples with him. We hear that the way, that is the Christian way, spread and grew. But we also know that as the gospel saturated and infiltrated that city, it was also greeted with serious objection. So later on we see that it caused a riot, and that wasn't for the first time. But zooming in here, just to verses 8 and 9, we see that some to whom Paul shared the gospel, they became obstinate. That is, they grew in their deliberate refusal to believe. And in some cases, that obstinance developed into a maligning, that is, an attacking, an opposing of Christianity itself. And so we see here both a warning and an encouragement. The warning is that for those who are inquiring about Christianity, like those who in Athens didn't believe or reject Jesus straight away, but they wanted to know more, there comes a point in time to make a decision to trust Jesus or not. There comes a point in time in which you shouldn't let that decision linger. For sometimes that delayed decision-making can actually grow and turn into an unwillingness to believe or even worse. Now, of course, if you're inquiring and you're asking lots of questions about Jesus, that's absolutely wonderful. Please do that. Please keep investigating the, the nature and the validity of Jesus' claims. But also know that there is a point in which the weighing up is over and it's time to decide. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's time. If it is or wondering if it is, we'd, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to pray with you about that. That's the warning. But there's also an encouragement. Paul was incredibly fruitful, I think we'd say, in the sharing of the gospel. A good measure of that is if 2,000 years later, there are millions of people who every week study the things you wrote, that is a pretty good criteria to measure that that was a fruitful uh, ministry. But note that even with that, and even though God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, and he obviously spoke persuasively and with great love, not everyone believed. I think it's encouraging. If you've been on the receiving end of rejection, disinterest, or even obstinance, as disappointing as that may be, please don't be discouraged or dissuaded. It's not in vain. God is at work in ways that we can only begin to imagine. There are people here today, so people here and online, who once thought the gospel was utter nonsense, but now believe. There are people here today, because at some point in time they wanted to know more, and they went on and weighed up the claims, and now they believe. And of course there are people here today who don't remember a time when they didn't follow Jesus. 
the Spirit is at work sending the gospel out and preparing hearts to respond. Finally, the gospel topples idols. So verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Now, it seems that a lot of people in Ephesus, so both Jews and Greeks, were caught up in all sorts of dodgy spiritual practices. Some, who had witnessed extraordinary miracles of God through his followers, thought, well, if we just imitate that, if we just utter the name of Jesus, then we can co-opt and contort his power for our purposes. But, you know, that doesn't actually work out very well. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them, you wonder how long were they doing this, but one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So the response is pretty extraordinary. Uh, We know Jesus, the evil spirit says, and we know Paul, but who are you? You're at least two degrees removed and you've got no power over us. They did not know Jesus, but only sought to use his name. But Jesus is not a magical name to be uttered and wielded. Jesus is not a God amongst many to be added to the mixed. Jesus, the one true and living God who is the ultimate power. That's why when word gets out about the walloping that they had received, uh, people don't conclude that Jesus has no power. They conclude that he's the one with all power. And so they confess their sin, put their trust in Jesus, and they burn their magic books. The cost of those magic scrolls was pretty extraordinary. There's lots of estimates of what it might mean, but it might equate around 50,000 days of work. Now, when we hear that, we might think, oh, well, that was really foolish, you know. How foolish is that to, to sink all your savings and your resources into such powerless things? But I wonder, if we're really honest, what are the things that we can plough our time and our resources into actually are equally as foolish in an attempt to grasp a false sense of security, purpose and power? What are the counterfeit stories and values of our culture that we even perhaps blindly buy into to help us make sense of our world and lives and give us a sense of purpose and control? I wonder, what do we need to put away? What are the counterfeit idols in our heart that need to be toppled by the gospel. A clue to identify these things is that if there are things that cause us to flinch if we will be challenged to let them go, then we might want to examine if they're an idol. And so they burn their magic scrolls, the counterfeit gods, because they've come to see that the true source of life and power is received by coming to know one who is both crucified and risen. They know that only Jesus is worthy of our allegiance, loyalty and devotion. Not long after this, we read in the rest of chapter 19, a riot erupted in Ephesus, not because Paul was out starting lots of fights, 
not because Christians are trying to overthrow the government or something like that, but simply because a silversmith who made a whole stack of money and had lots of product on his shelves selling these shrines of Artemis realises that this commercial venture is actually threatened by the gospel because the gospel has exposed that these trinkets have no power. It's exposed what they actually are. They're like novelty souvenirs sold on the roadside of a tourist attraction. So this little gospel movement threatens to pull the rug out of their entire economy. That's the silversmith sphere. They're scared that their mitre economy, backed up by long-held pagan beliefs, visually reinforced by the most impressive buildings, culturally ingrained by lots of superstitious practices, psychologically held tight as a source of pride, is all teetering on collapse, has been exposed as a scam because the invisible but true God of the universe is at work through a ragtag bunch of disciples proclaiming the good news of the risen Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. So often, we can feel powerless to proclaim Jesus. We can feel like our world has no interest in the good news, that it's immovable or too entrenched. But things are not as they seem. The temple of Artemis is in ruins, but the lordship of Jesus remains. The gospel is going out, God is at work, and he's enjoined us in that too. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that in your incredible mercy and grace, that your spirit is at work, in both the sending and the receiving of the good news. Lord, how we pray that in the power of your Spirit, that your good news would be at work in our hearts, in our city, and in our world, transforming lives, provoking response, and toppling idols. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.